Good afternoon. Thank you, everyone, for coming. My name is Marilyn Booth, and I'm one of the conveners of the Women's Rights in the Middle East seminar, which we hold twice every term. And it's a great pleasure today to introduce Özlem um, Galip, who is here as a Marie Curie Fellow at the Institute for Social and Cultural Anthropology at this university. She has been in Oxford before. She was the Kalust Gulbankian postdoctoral fellow at the Oriental Institute, where she was. She also taught Kurdish. She has worked on a number of different things. She was working as a postdoc on the representation of Armenian genocide in Turkish and Kurdish novels. And then before all this, she earned her PhD in Kurdish studies from the University of Exeter. She has a number of publications, just to mention a couple. In 2015, she published a book, Imagining Kurdistan, Identity, Culture, and Society. And she has a book forthcoming with Palgrave Macmillan entitled Turkey's Armenians, Identity Transformation from the Ottoman Empire to Modern Turkey. And then a number of major articles out or coming out, and I know she's going to be speaking about at least one of them. The project she's engaged in now is not only involving her in research in Oxford, but with a, a very, um, I would say, very awesome planned set of trips to do field research, and hopefully she will tell us more about that as well. So Islam is going to be talking about From Kurdistan to Europe, Kurdish Literary, Artistic, and Cultural Activism by Kurdish Women Intellectuals. So please join me in welcoming. First of all, I would love to thank Soroya, Marilyn, and Kaya for organizing this um, seminar. I'm really quite happy to be here. And thanks so much for sparing your time. I know it's just a mid of the day. It's not really easy to arrange for this uh, seminar. So first of all, I should mention that this is quite an ongoing project. So I'm just, I'm not even in the middle of it. So I'm just going to present what I've done so far. And maybe that will give you, a, you know, some brief idea about what's going on and what has been written about Kurdish women so far. I think that's quite important for my research. And as everybody kind of knows that Kurds, Kurdish people are quite, they have like complex identities, they're from different regions. So Kurdish women actually have been marginalized in several layers. To start with, their ethnic identity was crushed in their home countries, Iraqi, Iranian, Syrian, and Turkish Kurdistan. And they have been ignored by the feminist groups of the sovereign countries that they are based in, mainly you know, Arabic and uh, Turkish uh, feminist groups. And they became disadvantaged within patriarchal structures and societies. They have been victimized due to wars and uh, conflicts in Europe. And now they are in Europe and trying to kind of adapt and settle and, and tackle with the difficult outcomes of being both a woman and migrant. But of course, Kurds, Kurdish women are not the only one who are suffering from these uh, difficulties. But this, this whole project is kind of a challenge against what Kurdish women have been portrayed. Because I argue that Kurdish migrant women are moving from oppression within a traditional patriarchal society, ethnic oppression, and being stuck with, between secularism and Islam. And they kind of show a liberated agency that challenges the monolithic perspectives of social power. So, as Marilyn has mentioned, I have recently finished an article which will be published by the Journal of Women's History. And it's basically a critical analysis of the current, or you know, like so far what has been written on Kurdish women. And uh, based on that article, I came up with three strands of scholarly writings on Kurdish women. But before that, I want to say a couple of things. 
So, so far what we see about Kurdish women, Kurdish women, according to the scholarly works, they've been portrayed in monolithic and essentialist uh, form as either they are oppressed or victimized, and such generalized representations employ homogeneous and even orientalist portrayals which overlook intersections between different identities, not only reinforcing stereotypes, but they also reproduce neo-colonial and orientalist perspectives. So when we look at the, the books or the articles written on Kurdish women, you will see that they are either politically active women or they have been suffered from Anfal campaign, which took place in 1989 in Iraqi Kurdistan. So first of all, I started making a list of the articles and the books written on Kurdish women and I came up with this article and or they are victimized due to domestic abuse, honor killings, displacement, war. So I made three strands of scholarly writings on Kurdish women. First of them Anglophone scholars, mainly Americans, 1950s, 1960s, who visited Kurdish regions, who are aligned with traditional Western white middle class feminism involving a, r a range of binaries situating east in opposition to the west. So they have very orientalist portrayal of Kurdish women, that they are powerless, they are victimized by their patriarchal society. And there are Turkish feminists, because I'm a, I'm a Turkish reader, so I wish I could read Arabic and I would analyze how Arabic feminists have portrayed Kurdish women in their writings. But in terms of Turkish feminists, a number of them, I can um, share their names if you want to find out. They tend to adopt Orientalist nationalist and Kemalist national discourse on Kurdish women, and they attribute their stereotypical portrait backward customs to their Muslim identity. So they have kind of, I don't know, I, I'm, I'm going to put it in a very general term, but they have some kind of problem with Islam and through kind of criticizing or portraying Kurdish women in a very backward and traditional way, they kind of attack Islam as well in order to put forward their Kemalist approach or attitudes as well. So some kind of Kurdish women are just a tool to express their Kemalist and their secular ideology. And the third one is the Kurdish feminist. So I'm, I'm also very self-critical because I can say that Kurdish feminists or scholars, they also fail to challenge Western feminism and cultural imperialism. And they kind of position themselves within self-orientalism by reproducing the orientalist and stereotyping discourse of Western scholars. Just let me give you just one example, for instance, like Choman Hardy. Choman Hardy, I'm going to mention, and I interviewed her as well for this, in, uh, for this project. So when you read Choman Hardy's book on Anfal campaign, she did an extensive research in Iraqi Kurdistan, fair enough. However, when you look at her background chapters, you see that she has quotations from all these Anglophone scholars that I mentioned, and I have the list of it as well, because in that article I, I do analysis of these uh, writings as well. So basically she refers to them and she takes them um, granted. So as if they are the you know primary writings about Kurdish women, so they are accurate, and she kind of builds up something new on the top of not new actually, it's kind of reproduction of this Orientalist uh, portraits of Kurdish women. So my argument in this article is you have to deconstruct de 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 from you know from scratch, and you have to not deny but be very critical. So there are uh, some uh, Nazan Medikani, for instance, another one. Uh, she's a scholar based in Bristol University. And as if, as I said, she kind of took them granted. 
So, I use in that article Mohanty's six criteria for third world women. And according to Mohanty's article, third world women, like Kurdish women, are represented by six main stereotypes. They are either victims of male violence, universal dependence, victims of colonial process or familial systems or development processes and religious ident- uh, ideologies. Mohanty's six points call into question stereotypes and perceptions held by many Western observers about the Middle East in general and about women and feminism in, in particular. However, when we look at Kurdish women, they don't really just confirm Mohanty's categorizations. For instance, Kurdish women's politicized and competent identity has also been highlighted in scholarly works. The, the first that I mentioned about how Kurdish women are political agents. I believe this is something that needs to be added to Mohanty's six points because this is also a very general homogeneous stereotyping of Kurdish women, especially with, with the war in, uh, in Syria. So when we look at those images, Kurdish women are introduced to the West as brave, independent, capable of fighting against men. By the way, I don't want to be misunderstood. I'm completely supporting the you know YPJ uh, fighters in in Syria right now. I mean, it's not something critical about them. It's just the way they're portrayed, and the way they're kind of introduced to the Western audience. And however, this selective representation, Kurdish women thereby face another type of stereotyping. That of oppression and control is replaced by another, which is their armed fighter. So, Kurdish women fighters belong to the YPJ, the Kenyan Women's Protection Union, founded in 2013, and they're aligned with the ideology of democratic confederalism. It has been active in Syrian uh, Kurdistan against uh, ISIS, and they have received relatively wide Western media coverage especially after the kind of the, the siege of Kobane was lifted in January 2000. So they were all over the Western news. However, the femininity of these fighters was focal point for news and media outlets, which ignored the ideology behind the military actions. So they're quite what we call them a tabloid geopolitics. This news never mentioned about the ideology behind the military actions or their political governance of these women. So these representations actually constitute a form of tabloid geopolitics. Their struggle, depoliticized as significant ideological uh, components are overlooked, positioning them simply as heroines fighting against evil, reinforcing secular subjectivity against the radical religious identity of the Middle East. This is also quite interesting because Kurdish women have been fighting in Kurdistan for decades. You know, under PKK, still they fight Pejak in Iran or as Peshmerge uh, in Iraq along with KDP, Kurdistan Democratic Party. But somehow Kurdish women have never been focal point uh, in the news until the involvement of America and Western powers in Syria for their own uh, self-interest. So my whole point is just we have to, we have to be really very critical about those uh, portrayals. And actually before starting this project, personally, when I was seeing these images in the newspaper, in the Times, I was kind of proud of being a Kurdish woman. I've never been critical. I was thinking that these women are strong and they're portrayed as very strong women. But now I, nowadays I feel like there's another way of stereotyping. Because there is a high possibility that when a Kurdish woman introduces herself, the person across 
the Kurdish women will think that this person either has been oppressed by the husband or patriarchal society or she's uneducated or if she's active and kind of urbanized looking she must be very active politically so there's no way that you can be just middle class just urban just normal working employee i mean you, you can't be seen like this because of all these images and these images have been reinforced by the scholarly works that's my uh, argument or that's my problem let's say i, I mean i'm not uh, doing any research on media coverage but this has been kind of supported by uh, scholars as well, not just Western, as I said. They have been supported by Kurdish scholars as well. So it's good to see that these images in especially American uh, newspapers have been criticized by some scholars. But when you look at these works, you don't also see uh, that... Cur uh, so the works on political activism of Kurdish women do not theorize how this representation of Kurdish women actors and fighters uh, intersect. So their cultural and economic background, their sexual orientation, their religion affiliation are taken for granted and unified. So when you read those articles, you get an impression that all these fighters are heterosexual, they're politically active, secular, and they come from patriarchal familiar structures. So there is this generalization about even Kurdish women in those books uh, or in these articles which are criticizing this media coverage. So, in the last decade, Kurdish women have been analyzed as active political participants, not only in a monolithic manner, but also if their empowerment is bound entirely to their level of political activity. But we don't see any, for instance, I mean, do you read anything about political activism by Western women? I mean, we don't see anything, any research, because this is something expected from Western women. So Western women can be politically active, but there is no point in doing research about them. But when Middle Eastern women fight for their freedom or when they fight like a man, it can be a topic for, for research because they belong to their kind of household or their own private spheres. So intersectional criticism is really needed urgently in the works um, conducted on Kurdish women. And they must examine both present and absent images, for instance. What is absent in the list of all the bibliography I have shown, which is, as I mentioned, there is no research on skilled, educated, middle-class, homosexual, non-married, or urban women. Even urban women are all politicized women. So when you read an article about Kurdish women in Istanbul, they're just people who are very politicized under certain NGOs or you know political movements. I'm not criticizing them, let last say, because I'm one of them. But what I'm trying to do, the methodology, the materials are very, very selective for certain purposes, is my um, argument. So that's why I came up with this project, because this project is kind of challenging, challenging all these uh, strengths and the way Kurdish women have been portrayed. And this research aims to understand these are the main three points that I'm, I'm planning to pursue. I'm not going to read them. And the people that I will be... So I keep saying that their number has increased in the last 10 decades. So why, why I mean, why I say that Kurdish women activism, I don't mean just political activism, as I said, it can be aesthetic, literary, cultural activism kind of has, decreased, uh, has increased in the last 10 years, mainly there are so many other reasons, but to name some of them, 
because of the ever ever changing dynamics from the home country. So the the anything happens home in home countries really affect Kurdish migrant women in Europe. For instance, the empowerment of the Kurdistan regional government. But of course, they are suffering from a very serious financial crisis that affected the funding and grant so severely. And also, that was valid for some time, the ease of the bans on Kurdish language and publications. That's not the case. The whole situation kind of has changed since 2015. Now, like hundreds of NGOs were kind of shut down and there is no way for, uh, there is no any space for uh, freedom of speech whatsoever. But the impacts of Kurdish women's resistance in Syria, the increasing migration of Kurdish women to Europe from Syria in, since 2011, and actually second generation is really important here. So we should really pay attention to second generation who, who don't have any language problems, who manage to kind of carry their own identity, I think identity, along with the identity of the host country that they're in. However, I'm focusing on five European countries, but each of them is really very different from each other. So my observation is when the country doesn't accept your ethnic identity, your struggle as a migrant becomes a struggle for asking for acknowledgement as a Kurd. Like for instance, in Sweden, you wouldn't see any Kurdish protest on the street asking for acknowledgement from Swedish authorities because they already do that. So that means they have more time they have more energy for doing other stuff like cultural or you know uh, like literary or I don't know, even political activism whereas still in London there are so many Kurds you will see that in front of the parliament that they're also criticizing the involvement of Theresa May's close relationship with with Erdogan as well so basically these Kurds don't really have much chance of focusing on their own integration they're still, you know, thinking about their home country and the relationship between their home country with the country that they're, they're kind of, um, they're living. So that's why there's a, there's a huge difference between France, Belgium, Germany and England. And Sweden is the most successful one for, for so many obvious reasons. So what I mean, those women to name, oh, of course, like social media made them more visible. That's important bit. Really, we have to really acknowledge that as well. So these are, I'm going to interview, I have interviewed a number of them, but in total I'm supposed to interview 40 women. And these are just some of them. And when you look at all these names, you will see a first generation somewhere else apart from uh, Sweden. So basically, if I make very generalized assumption, which is second generation can kind of achieve certain artistic literary kind of commitments anywhere else but in Sweden you might see first generation so they have kind of been given the chance of expressing themselves even if they're the first comers whereas in other countries they're like Hijran Demir you know she's just like 30 or something but she was born in in, in Germany and Sakine Madon uh, she came when she was like in her 20s to Sweden and so so many others like um, that they're as I said second generation that they have been given the chance okay I'm not gonna get into details about how migration looks in in Europe because it's really complicated but I can say a couple of things which is that for a long time migration has seen as a genderless 
So as if kind of the gender aspect of migration has been dismissed. And uh, then you see some works conducted on, on, um, on migrant women, but again, these this, uh, works do not take their differences into consideration. So as if like there's only one type of Indian migrant women. What about the social class? What about the age? The sexual? They're all heterosexual to start with. I mean, or they're all coming from one class, like working class, or, or they're all suffering from patriarchal structures. But this has been changing in general. Uh, when you look at the, the recent books on migrant women in Europe, you can see that this stigmatized uh, or marginalized images are being questioned. But in general, when I started this project, I said, okay, most possibly some people have conducted quite similar work on, let's say, Egyptian women or Iranian women, how they are culturally or artistically active in Europe. But no, I haven't seen any so far. So there are works on NGOs, like politically active women, but there is no any research on a migrant woman who is just an artist, you know, I, I mean a scholarly work. And so somehow these, they're still not seen as someone who can capable of acting, which means the, I use the concept of autonomy of migration. So it, this autonomy of migration emphasizes migrant self-initiated contribution to action in the migration process. It interprets migration as a rational project of departure and shows the agents of migration to be creative, tactical, everyday cosmopolitans. But despite all of these obstacles, migrant women in general and Kurdish women have become active in political activity and collective actions within Europe and have they have gained greater visibility in the public sphere. The activism in turn has acted in some cases to transform gender relations within migrant communities, giving women a larger and more public role than they have had previously experienced. I just want to say a couple of things about Europe. Uh, as I said, uh, these five countries are my side fields. And this is really very basic, very generalized, you know, kind of, not assumptions, but the way they kind of look at migrations or migrants or refugees. So within those, I can say, if you want me to put in order, I guess Sweden will be the, the number one. Kind of Germany, because they have a long history of migrants. So they kind of managed to accept the, the existence, the presence of migrants. So they had to kind of apply some integration policies. And as I said, the number of second generation, even third generation is coming up. So they, they can't stop them coming. And UK will be the third, but France and Belgium will be the worst one because still in so many of them Kurds are, are perceived as minority within minority and within all these countries uh, Kurds are registered as Kurds just in Sweden so still Kurds are considered as subgroup of Turkish like I'm, I'm if you look at I'm Kurdish but I'm, I'm British at the same time but most possibly I'm considered as just just Turkish to British authorities so but in Sweden that's not the case you are considered as, as Kurdish and why I keep saying that, because you're going to see a very different portrayal of Kurdish women in Sweden. And they are blossoming in, in every area. Like, when I meet a Swedish person, for instance, like they know about 
like a number of Kurdish women journalists or TV presenters, that wouldn't be a case in, in the UK. They wouldn't know anyone because it's just, they're just known within their own field. But in Sweden, that's not the case. So as I said, France and Belgium, it's really like, although the number of Kurds in France is really quite leading, they're kind of the second biggest country of reception after Germany. But like other host countries, France categorizes Kurds as nationals of their countries of origin and if they are not asylum seekers. So the French Republican political system is still strong despite the relative recognition of the French diversity in 2000. So there are actually some certain policies are in place, but somehow this hasn't been reflected on the society. But there are so many reasons. I'm not going to get into that because I really want to start the women that I'm talking about and their profile and how they're challenging and how this will help us to deconstruct not just Kurdish or Middle Eastern society, any, any society surrounded. I mean, when we look at Shala, Shala is quite well known in Sweden, like even Swedish people, you know, uh, have heard of her name because she was singing with a very well-known uh, Swedish singer, Robin. Have you ever heard of Robin? Robin is kind of, I don't know, I don't know what will be the equivalent of it in, in the UK. <laughs> Britney Spears, <laughs> old maybe Britney Spears was uh, Robin. Uh, she's been on the stages like for many many years, so she's quite well known uh, singer Robin. So Shala, she's considered or defined as Kurdish Lady Gaga, is queer singer, musician, and songwriter originally from Iranian Kurdistan. Shala's anthems have brought international acclaim for her first album, which was released in 2015 on Swedish pop star Robin. Shala's music has been described as experimental pop music, so she doesn't make any traditional Kurdish music, and she herself calls it cosmic pop. pop. Cosmic pop. It really sounds like cosmic. Born and raised in Sweden, she has said many other things inspired by Kurdish folk music, so yes, she makes cosmic pop music, but it has been inspired by Kurdish folk music. The struggle for freedom has been a force in Shala's cosmic pop songs influenced by Kurdish dance music called Halparke. That is a certain dance style, especially for uh, Soran Kurds. Shala identifies herself as Kurdish, Swedish and a queer. And her unique music reflects this identity. And she says that identity, nationality, spirituality and politics are all inherent themes of her music because they are all big parts of her life. And she said something like this, which I really, really loved. Kurdish artistic productions, um, but for that, I think, um, so in order to get hold of uh, Shala, I emailed one of my friends uh, who was born in Stockholm. She's Kurdish from Iranian Kurdistan, and uh, she was doing her MA when I was doing my PhD. I said, Sheila, I want to make interview with Kurdish intellectual women. I, I was trying to keep it simple and very short. And and this is my list. Do you know any of them? Can you please get me in touch with uh, some of them? And then she said, yeah, sure, I know some of them. I don't think, I, I'm not so sure if we can call Shala as intellectual. So this is the dilemma that this, this profiles have been suffering as well, because 
the way and, and if you look at Shala's picture, she doesn't really confirm this, you know, generalized, uh, confirmed portrayal of Kurdish women. And uh, I know Shilar that she is very like classical pro-Kurdish, and she's very politically active. So most po not most possibly, but it's true. Shala is quite a political person, but in a in a different very marginal way. So she hasn't been embraced by Kurds themselves. That's why Swedish audiences know her actually more than the Kurdish audiences. So these people are having this dilemma as well. So it's not like, uh, because they, they act like an individual and they haven't been kind of embraced by their own society because they are not traditional. But of course, being traditional is quite controversial. For her, for Shala, Kurdish artistic productions serve as site of resistance where dissent against dominant political and cultural hegemonies is displayed. And as Stefan Dankov argues, artistic production and culture can be used as a means of resistance and provide a framework through which to interpret reality and possibility. And Shala wants her voice to be the voice of resistance to oppression, but in diverse forms. But she doesn't want her to voice to be considered as pre-packed political voice. To achieve this, she performs at art galleries and has a unique performance style, including the use of Kurdish flags and spray bottles of rose water. So she kind of combines all types of tools and you know colors in in, in her concerts. The another one is Evin Ahmed. Evin Ahmed, she's from uh, Syrian Kurdistan and she's, she's very, very well known in Sweden right now. That's why it's really hard to get hold of her. She has recently acted in Girls of the Sun, made by Eva Husson, screened in competition at the Cannes Film Festival. It's a, uh, it's a film about kind of women fighters against ISIS. And she says, uh, we are a part of this society. I was born and raised here and I'm, I'm, I'm sweet. She says, Recently, the deportation of asylum seekers has become the hot media topic. Newspapers clearly report that police are searching for asylum seekers in the metros and train stations in order to deport them. When I heard this, I immediately went to metro station to fight for the asylum seekers. She's not an asylum seeker and she's not necessarily fighting for Kurdish asylum seekers, but she feels that's her responsibility to do so. But she's also Kurdish and she says, when I see the script of a movie, for example, titled Honor Killing, I see it as degrading to Kurdish women and I refuse to play in such movies. We must not accept all roles. The image they have created in their minds about us must be changed, referring to Swedish stereotypes about Kurdish immigrants, which is quite accurate. So she fights against the Swedish stereotypes about Kurdish women immigrants and she attempts to recreate or reaffirm Kurdish identity in Sweden through employing a discursive strategy with the use of her position and individual characteristics in Swedish cinema and now worldwide. So most possibly we're going to see her in Hollywood soon. Germany. I don't know, it's quite controversial. Is there anyone who lived in Germany? I know there are some Kurds. So, how do you consider Seyran? Have you ever heard of her? Okay, so Seyran is, is, is Kurdish and she, she's, I think she will be one of the most uh, interesting women in my list because she is a lawyer and human rights activist and she usually takes the cases of Muslim women regarding violence, abuse or forced marriages. She is the founder of Germany's first liberal mosque in 2017 
where men, women, members of the LGBT community can can pray together. And that's the she said that's the dream of hers. So she came to Germany as a child in 1960s, and uh, she is author of the book uh, which was published 2009, Islam: The Integration of Muslims in Ger Germany. And then she wrote another book, Hello Mrs. Imam, How I Founded a Liberal Mosque in Berlin. She explained her ideas and convictions <coughs> in this. She said um, she receives 300 emails per day, encouraging her to carry on, including mails from as far as Australia and Algeria. But she also gets 3,000 emails a day full of hate, some of them including death threats. And she was about to be killed actually in 1984 when working as a counselor for Turkish women and she was previously attacked by the, by the angry husband of former client. She is planning to open a second liberal mosque um, in Germany and uh, she was actually in London last year and she is planning to open an inclusive place for worship and she works with other um she's lesbian but i don't know why she's not explicitly lesbian um i would like to ask her because she mainly works with other lesbian uh, um, imams like shirin hankam danish woman and imam in copenhagen there are so many others that uh, they work together against um, sharia law and she says there is no Islamic requirement to cover one's head. There is no theological argument even in the most conservative interpretation of the Quran. Hijab, Nijab and Burqa represent the sexualizing. And so basically, women from Middle East in the West put in the category of Muslim women. They have been associated with Muslim issues such as terrorism, polygamy and headscarves. Ethnicized and racialized migrant women, particularly if they come from so-called Muslim, uh, Muslim countries or identify themselves as Muslim, they are often portrayed in public debates as bearers of the more authentic version of the culture of origin, and they often seen as backward and not compatible Western values. However, Kurdish women like Seyran, and the one that I'm going to mention in a minute, they distance themselves from the common rhetoric of Islam and associations representing them. The Kurdish women, when you look at their discourses, they always saw themselves as more emancipated than other nation, uh, national and ethnically um, other Middle Eastern women. And uh, when we look at her discourses, Sayyidina Tejh reveals that reveals the many ways of rejecting fundamental assertions and instead calls for a diverse opinion, greater freedom and equality of the sexes. So again, I'm very critical. So when Sayyidina Tejh is very popular uh, somehow, maybe in, in some areas in Germany, again, I'm quite critical about it. It's not because I'm not supporting what she says, it's about why she has been kind of, I know I'm, maybe some people will attack me for saying that, but she is the ideal Muslim that Western powers or Western countries would love to have. She is both Muslim, so she's not rejecting and her identity, but she is the, she is the secular one. So she's kind of complying with what Islam should be in, in Western. That's why they have this space of expressing themselves. I'm going to mention about another woman in Sweden, and she also has a lot of coverage in media as well. And she has, she's not an imam, but she says that she's Muslim, but she's against these fundamentalist Islamist um, movements in Europe, and she's strongly against them, and she fights against all these men in Muslim neighborhoods. She personally had 
a couple of incidents that the police had to come. And uh, so, as I said, the reason why women like Seyran have been kind of favored is another internal dynamics going on. So, like, for instance, even like yesterday, there's this uh, swimming, uh, I don't know if you ever read it, but the Swimming Federation director, uh, I can't pronounce her name in Sweden, she, she shared something on Instagram saying that the, the sports children, the children who are doing sports with headscarves, they shouldn't be put in media because somehow headscarves will kind of not provoke, but that will kind of promote the, the kind of uh, honor killings or you know polygamies or all the negative associations uh, associations <coughs> made with headscarves. So she made such kind of remark, and she had to resign from her job. And but when we look at all these uh, Kurdish women in um, social media reacting to this, they're all sport. They all they were all supporting these women. So basically, uh, they were all supporting the fact that sh children shouldn't be forced into wearing headscarves. So they were all, you know, kind of agreeing with this swimming federation uh, director. So they're completely all these Kurdish women who are successful that I listed. They're all secular to start with. So this is something that we need to question. I mean, yes, these people are successful. Yes, they're. And they are political, but not too political either. That's another thing. I mean, they are political in, in their own parliament, but they don't have any direct links with any sort of even legal parties in, in Turkey. Like even HDP is quite, you know, legitimate pro-Kurdish party, but you, you won't see this woman having kind of direct relationship with this HDP. So that's also kind of a little bit the hypocrisy of, uh, of a successful migrant woman in, in, in West as well. So these are just the questions I'm, I'm, I'm having while looking at all these portrayals. So another one, as I mentioned, which is quite similar with Seyran will be Zeliha. She's another um, Kurdish woman. She, uh, she came from Turkey in 1985. She was elected representative of the left party in Sweden. So she's one of the few first-generation kind of successful women. And uh, she's been fighting for women's rights in Stockholm's immigrant suburbs for 25 years. So she says something like that. Once upon a time, I ran away, terrified of my childhood imams in our former homeland. Some of them controlled the girls in the village. All the girls were not allowed to pass through the square in the village, but had to sneak and take the tours and make themselves invisible. That shadow persecuted me and Sweden I tried to get peace and quiet. But in the city of Uppsala, where I first arrived, my life continued to be controlled by my countrymen and I fled from that shadow to Stockholm. There I was persecuted by the shadow and now I live in Husby. Still, even there, I see all the shadows you can imagine, and I do not have the right to an open and independent life. I'm constantly monitored. I want a sanctuary, and I want to have a glass of beer with my friends, Lars, Hassan, Marianne, Osman. I also want to go to the senior student association and listen to jazz and dance. I want to grow vegetables on, on my allotment while wearing and hang out with my friends and go to the bathhouse in a bikini. So so I'm, I'm meeting her next week, like kind of kind of on the, on the 2nd of March so she mentions about her Kurdish identity quite explicitly so she kind of embraced it but 
the values or the struggles that she's kind of defending is not just limited with, with Kurdish. And uh, the, the fellow men that she mentions is those quite Islamic ones in certain neighborhoods and she shares her personal story like moving from one neighbor to another to get more freedom. So basically she's she's fighting against so somehow I feel like this woman has more right to say against Islamic fundamentalists than any other Swedish woman. Because being a Muslim, being coming from a Muslim country gives you some kind of not kind of luxury but kind of freedom because she's Muslim as well. So she can criticize another Muslim fellow kind of but of course, she's been very active in other political areas as well, not just about this, but mainly she's all over the news because of these thoughts and somehow these thoughts have been embraced and supported by the Swedish media and public as well. So I have so many other... Um, I'm just gonna, not going to get into detail, just going to make some um, concluding remarks about today, but... Another one can be Choman Hardy. She she came to uh, UK when she was 18, and so she fled to the UK from Saddam Hussein's regime in her 20s with her family. She was 18 actually, and she even studied at the University of Oxford. Uh, she's done her yeah she's done her bachelor degree at Oxford, and she has written number number of poetry books. And she's one of the ones who got back to actually um, her country. So she's in Iraqi Kurdistan and she set <coughs> up a, a gender studies department at American University of Suleimania. And uh, she got a very prestigious um, funding from EU to run the center. And so it's considered as the first interdisciplinary gender studies in Iraq. So somehow uh, she kind of used all her networks and all her knowledge and experiences to do something in Iraqi Kurdistan. So this also shows a transnational relationship between uh, this uh, intellectual woman. But when you also look at her work, she's not like kind of confirming all the Western powers <coughs> discourses. She, she interrogates the impacts of Western and colonial knowledge and she really blames kind of Western powers for the division of Kurdistan. But on the other hand, she also questions patriarchy and nation state and globalizations. And it's clear to see that through the transnational networking, transnational dynamics, and institutionally mobilized and sustained connections, she combines material and cultural exchange in U European countries as a Kurdish migrant and the agents of cultural production in her home country. Writing can be employed as a political strategy, so somehow, you know, she uses the political strategy. And according to Gojek and Balagi in, in their book, they say Middle Eastern women actually mostly turn to writing as a means to participate in society when attempts have been made to mute their public voice. So Hardy used her poetry to express her opinions against Kurdish patriarchy and also Western powers. So Hardy's writings, can, um, which have launched an assault on male domination, patriarchal society, all forms of authority. Another one is Della Murat. She's another, she is also first generation living in London. I didn't want to have just like musicians or I don't know, filmmakers. I want to have 
you know, like a woman who is kind of engaged with other types of cultural activism. She's a fashion designer and she designs, redesigns Kurdish clothes, let's say. And I have attended a number of her exhibitions. <coughs> and uh, she's very good at with having networking with kind of British institutions as well. She really collaborates with them. She established a very uh, good cultural center called Gulan. But she doesn't accept to get any funding from any Kurdish political party, so she prefers to be kind of independent. So I'm just gonna have some concluding remarks. I know it has been quite uh, very, you know, comprehensive because the, the project itself is so huge, like 40 women, but five countries, and each country is different from each other. They have all their internal and external dynamics. And also, I've been critical about what has been written in the, like before this project, so it has been, that's why, a bit long. But I can just uh, come up with a couple of concluding remarks, which will be Kurdish women's status within patriarchal society is uh, a legitimate concern, but I believe stereotyping them along with binary oppositions against males, patriarchy and masculinity in orientalist discourses as powerless, submissive, obedient women leads to further marginalization and disempowerment. We must abandon simplistic and mechanical models constructed for Kurdish women. And what is suggested here is to deconstructing the discourse and, and not legitimizing the hegemony and imperialism of both Western and sovereign countries that Kurds have long suffered. And when then a sociologist indicated that migrant women seem to be more likely than migrant men to reject the culture of origin and see more promise in a secular model. Rejection will be too strong for Kurdish women case because they are participants in multiple Kurdish political and cultural organizations but they also take an integrationist <laughs> and feminist approach that favors multiplicity of cultures. Bearing in mind that migration is a process involving individuals with all their unique life experiences, complexities and consequences of their choices, sacrifices, ambiguities and hopes associated with the moves, I can say that on the one hand these women, Kurdish women's uh, cultural and identity, ethnic identity are politicized and contested side and they claim to be a member of their diasporic <coughs> communities. On the other hand, they enact themselves as citizens of their host countries, so an active member of their multicultural European cities. So looking at these profiles of these women, of course there are so many of me, just a number of them I just picked for you, we can say that they share common practices across boundaries. They have potential, despite all my criticisms, they have the definitely potential to strengthen democratization and weaken conservative and patriarchal forces. I should say that, be it individual or collective, each of these women offers an art of existence, as Foucault says, which spans across both Kurdistan and host countries and constitutes a valuable model to enact fruitful forms of citizenship in Europe. They challenge locally hegemonic forms of Kurdishness. Instead, they invoke alternative values, both to their ethnic culture and their communities in their host countries. They contest homogeneous notions of Kurdish identity and attempt to break from dominant Orientalist discourse of Middle Eastern other through their diversity and complexity in their discourses and performances in public sphere. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.